Hello. Welcome to Madison Public Library in Madison, Ohio's Theater of the Mind, Halloween edition. Tonight, we have the first of a two-night story, Lygea, by Edgar Allan Poe. To hear more stories, like this video and subscribe to our YouTube channel. I cannot, for my soul, remember how, when, or even precisely where I first became acquainted with the Lady Lygia. Long years have since elapsed, and my memory is feeble through much suffering. Or, perhaps, I cannot now bring these points to mind, because in truth, the character of my beloved, her rare learning, her singular yet placid cast of beauty, and the thrilling and enthralling eloquence of her low musical language made their way into my heart by paces so steadily and stealthily progressive that they had been unnoticed and unknown. Yet, I believe that I met her first and most frequently in some large, old, decaying city near the Rhine. Of her family, I have surely heard her speak. That it is of a remote, ancient date cannot be doubted. Lygia. Lygia. Buried in studies of a nature more than all else adapted to deaden impressions of the outward world, it is by that sweet word alone, by Lygia, that I bring before mine eyes in fancy the image of her who was no more. And now, while I write, a recollection flashes upon me that I have never known the paternal name of her who was my friend and my betrothed, and who became the partner of my studies, and finally, the wife of my bosom. Was it a playful charge on the part of my Lygia? Or was it a test of my strength of affection that I should institute no inquiries upon this point? Or was it rather a caprice of my own, a wildly romantic offering on the shrine of the most passionate devotion? I but distinctly recall the fact itself. What wonder that I have utterly forgotten the circumstances which originated or attended it. And, indeed, if ever that spirit which is entitled romance, if ever she, the wan and the misty-winged Ashtophet of idolatrous Egypt, presided, as they tell, over marriages ill-omened, then most surely she presided over mine. There is one dear topic, however, on which my memory fails me not. It is the person of Lygia. In stature, she was tall, somewhat slender, and in her later days, even emaciated. I would in vain attempt to portray the majesty, the quiet ease of her demeanor, or the incomprehensible lightness and elasticity of her footfall. She came and departed as the shadow. I was never made aware of her entrance into my closed study, save by the dear music of her low, sweet voice as she placed her marble hand upon my shoulder. In beauty of face, no maiden ever equaled her. It was the radiance of an opium dream.
an airy and spirit-lifting vision more wildly divine than the fantasies which hovered about the slumbering souls of the daughters of Delos. Yet her features were not of that regular mold which we have been falsely taught to worship in classical labors of the heathen. There is no exquisite beauty, says Bacon, Lord Veriland, speaking truly of all the form and genera of beauty, without some strangeness in proportion. Yet, although I saw that the features of Lygea were not of a classic regularity, although I perceived that her loveliness was indeed exquisite, and felt that there was much strangeness pervading it, yet I have tried in vain to detect the irregularity and to trace home my perception of the strange. I examined the contour of the lofty and pale forehead. It was faultless. How cold indeed that word when applied to majesty so divine. The skin rivaling the purest ivory, the commanding extent and repose, the gentle prominence of the regions above the temples, and then the raven black, the glossy, the luxuriant and naturally curling tresses, setting forth the full force of the Homeric epithet, Hyacinthine. I looked at the delicate outlines of the nose, and nowhere but in the graceful medallions of the Hebrews had I beheld a similar perfection. They were the same luxurious smoothness of surface, the same scarcely perceptible tendency to the aquiline, the same harmoniously curved nostrils speaking the free spirit. I regarded the sweet mouth. Here was indeed the triumph of all things heavenly, the magnificent turn of the short upper lip, the soft, voluptuous slumber of the under, the dimples which sported, and the color which spoke, the teeth glancing back, with a brilliancy almost startling, every ray of the holy light which fell upon them in her serene and placid, yet most exultantly radiant of all smiles. I scrutinized the formation of the chin, and here too I found the gentleness of breath, the softness and the majesty, the fullness and the spirituality of the Greek the contour which the god Apollo revealed but in a dream to Cleomenes, the son of the Athenian. And then I peered into the large eyes of Lygia. For eyes, we have no models in the remotely antique. It might have been, too, that in these eyes of my beloved lay the secret to which Lord Verulam alludes. They were, I must believe, far larger than the ordinary eyes of our own race. They were even fuller than the fullest of the gazelle eyes of the tribe of the valley of Norjahad. Yet, it was only at intervals, in moments of intense excitement, that this peculiarity became more than slightly noticeable in Lygia. And at such moments was her beauty. In my heated fancy thus it appeared perhaps, the beauty of beings either above or apart from the earth, the beauty of the fabulous hoary of the Turk. The hue of the herbs was the most brilliant of black, and far over them hung jetty lashes of great length. The brows, slightly irregular in outline, had the same tints. The strangeness, however, which I found in the eyes, was of a nature distinct from the formation, of the color, 
of the brilliancy of the features and must, after all, be referred to the expression. Ah, word of no meaning, behind whose vast latitude of mere sound we entrench our ignorance of so much of the spiritual. The expression of the eyes of Lygia. How for long hours have I pondered upon it. How have I, through the whole of a midsummer night, struggled to fathom it. What was it that something more profound than the well of Democritus, which lay far within the pupils of my beloved, what was it? I was possessed with a passion to discover those eyes, those large, those shining, those divine orbs. They became to me twin stars of Leda, and I to them devoutest of astrologers. There is no point among the many incomprehensible anomalies of the science of mind more thrillingly excited than the fact, never, I believe, noticed in the schools, that in our endeavors to recall to memory something long forgotten, we often find ourselves upon the very verge of remembrance without being able, in the end, to remember. And thus how frequently, in my intense scrutiny of Lygia's eyes, have I felt approaching the full knowledge of their expression, felt it approaching, yet not quite be mine, and so at length entirely depart. And, strange, O oh, strangest mystery of all, I found in the commonest objects of the universe a circle of analogies to that expression. I mean to say that, subsequently to the period when Lygia's beauty passed into my spirit, there dwelling as in a shrine, I derived from many existences in the material world a sentiment such as I felt always aroused within me by her large and luminous orbs. Yet not the more could I define that sentiment, or analyze, or even steadily view it. I recognized it. Let me repeat. Sometimes in the survey of a rapidly growing vine, in the contemplation of a moth, a butterfly, a chrysalis, a stream of running water. I have felt it in the ocean, in the falling of a meteor. I have felt it in the glances of unusually aged people. And there are one or two stars in heaven, one especially, a stars of the sixth magnitude, double and changeable, to be found near the large star in Lyra, in a telescopic scrutiny of which I have been made aware of the feeling. I have been filled with it by certain sounds from stringed instruments and not unfrequently by passages from books. Among innumerable other instances, I well remember something in the volume of Joseph Glanville, which, perhaps merely from its quaintness, who shall say, never failed to inspire me with sentiment. And the will therein lieth which dieth not, who knoweth the mystery of the will with its vigor, for God is but a great will pervading all things by nature of its intentness. Man doth not yield him to the angels, nor to death utterly, save only through the weakness of his feeble will. Length of years and subsequent reflection have enabled me to trace, indeed, some remote connection between this passage in the English moralist and a portion of the character of Lygia. An intensity in thought action or speech was possibly in her a result or at least an index 
of that gigantic volition in which, during our long intercourse, failed to give other and more immediate evidence of its existence. Of all the women who I have ever known, she, the outwardly calm, the ever-placid Lygia, was the most violently a prey to the tumultuous vultures of stern passion. And of such passion I could form no estimate, save by the miraculous expansion of those eyes which at once so delighted and appalled me, by the almost magical melody, modulation, distinctness, and placidity of her voice, and by the fierce energy, rendered doubly effective by contrast with her manner of utterance, of the wild words which she habitually uttered. I have spoken of the learning of Lygia. It was immense, such as I have never known in a woman. In the classical tongues was she deeply proficient, and as far as my own acquaintance extended in regard to the modern dialects of Europe, I have never known her at fault. Indeed, upon any theme of the most admired, because simply the most abstruse of the boasted erudition of the academy, have I ever found Ligeia at fault. How singularly, how thrillingly, this one point in the nature of my wife has forced itself, at this late period only, upon my attention. I said her knowledge was such as I have never known in a woman. But where breathes the man who has traversed and successfully all the wide areas of moral, physical, and mathematical science. I saw, not then what I now clearly perceive, that the acquisitions of Lygia were gigantic, were astounding, yet I was sufficiently aware of her infinite supremacy to resign myself, with a childlike confidence, to her guidance through the chaotic world of metaphysical investigation at which I was most busily occupied during the earlier years of our marriage. With how vast a triumph, with how vivid a delight, with how much of all that is ethereal in hope, did I feel, as she bent over me in studies but little sought, but less known, that delicious vista by slow degrees expanding before me, down whose long, gorgeous, and all-untrodden path, I might at length pass onward to the goal of a wisdom too divinely precious not to be forbidden. How poignant, then, must have been the grief with which, after some years, I beheld my well-grounded expectations take wings to themselves and fly away. Without Lygia, I was but as a child groping benighted. Her presence, her readings alone, rendered vividly luminous the many mysteries of the transcendentalism in which we were immersed. Wanting the radiant luster of her eyes, letters, lampant and golden, grew duller than Saturnian lead. And now, those eyes shone less and less frequently upon the pages which I poured. Lygia grew ill. The wild eyes bleed with a too, too glorious effulgence. The pale fingers became of the transparent waxen hue of the grave, and the blue veins upon the lofty forehead swelled and sank impetuously with the tides of the most gentle emotion. I saw that she must die, and I struggled desperately in spirit with the grim Azrael, and the struggles of the passionate wife were, to my astonishment, even more energetic than my own. There had been much in her stern nature to impress me with the belief that 
to her, death would have come without its terrors. But not so. Words are impotent to convey any just idea of the fierceness of resistance with which she wrestled with the shadow. I groaned in anguish at the pitiable spectacle. I would have soothed. I would have reasoned. But in the intensity of her wild desire for life, for, for life, but for life, solace and reason were alike the uttermost of folly. Yet, not until the last instance, amid the most convulsive writhings of her fierce spirit, was shaking the external placidity of her demeanor. Her voice grew more gentle, grew more low. Yet, I would not wish to dwell upon the wild meaning of the quietly uttered words. My brain reeled as I hearkened, entranced, to a melody more than mortal, to assumptions and aspirations which mortality had never before known. That she loved me, I should have not have doubted. And I might have been easily aware that, in a bosom such as hers, love would have reigned no ordinary passion. But in death only was I fully impressed with the strength of her affection. For long hours, detaining my hand, would she pour out before me the overflowing of a heart whose more than passionate devotion amounted to idolatry. How had I deserved to be so blessed by such confessions? How had I deserved to be so cursed with the removal of my beloved in the hour of her making them? But upon this subject, I cannot bear to dilate. Let me say only that in Lygea's more than womanly abandonment to a love, alas, all unmerited, all unworthily bestowed, I at length recognized the principle of her longing with so wildly earnest a desire for the life which was now fleeing so rapidly away. It is this wild longing, it is this eager vehemence of the desire for life, but for life, that I have no power to portray, no utterance capable of expressing. At high noon of the night in which she departed, beckoning me peremptorily to her side, she bade me repeat certain verses composed by herself not many days before. I obeyed her. They were these. Lo, tis a gala night within the lonesome latter years. An angel throng, bewinged, bedight in veils, and drowned in tears. Sit in a theater to see a play of hopes and fears, while the orchestra breathes fitfully the music of the spheres. Mimes, in the form of God on high, mutter and mumble low, and hither and thither fly, mere puppets they who come and go. At bidding of vast formless things that shift the scenery to and fro, Flapping from out their condor wings, invisible woe. That motley drama, oh be sure, it shall not be forgot. With its phantom chased forevermore by a crowd 
that sees it not. Through a circle that ever returneth into the selfsame spot, and much of madness, and more of sin, and horror, the soul of the plot. But see, amid the mimic rout, a crawling shape intrude, a blood-red thing that writhes from out, the scenic solitude. It writhes, it writhes, with mortal pangs, the mimes become its food, and the seraphs sob at vermin fangs, in human gore imbued. Out, out are the lights, out all, and over each quivering form, the curtain of funeral pall comes down with the rush of a storm, and the angels, all pallid and wan, uprising, unveiling, affirm that the play is the tragedy, man, and its hero, the conqueror, worm. O oh God, half shrieked Lygea, leaping to her feet and extending her arms aloft with a spasmodic movement as I made an end of these lines. O oh God, O oh Divine Father, shall these things be undeviatingly so? Shall this conqueror be not once conquered? Are we not part and parcel in thee? Who... Who knoweth the mysteries of the will with its vigor? Man doth not yield him to the angels, nor unto death utterly, save only through the weakness of his feeble will. And this ends the first part of Lygea by Edgar Allan Poe. Don't forget to like this video and subscribe to our YouTube channel for part two of two. Also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. Have a good night.